Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 15th, 2021. I'm browsing the newspaper headlines this morning. The C word pops out at me, not um, not community or cooperation, but conflict. Everything in the media today seems to point to conflict. Uh, New York Times, perhaps missing uh, Mr. Conflict himself, Donald Trump as a headline about the continuing fight between uh, the Justice Department, I'm not sure if that's the right word, and, and, and the Trump administration. Uh, one of the big foreign policy, uh, P, uh, foreign policy magazines suggests that America is not ready for a war with China, more conflict uh, of a real physical kind. Um, the Financial Times has a headline about in terms of the upcoming summit between uh, Joe Biden and, and Putin, uh, a new era of information warfare. So the conflict might not be physical, it might be digital. Um, apparently, Biden is going to give Putin a list of demands at this upcoming uh, summit uh, this week. Um, and the Washington Post talks about that. All over the world, there's conflict, even in the Middle East, the the, the crucible of conflict uh, over the last century. Now, within Israel itself, there's conflict on the right between the, um, the, the Netanyahu people and, and the new government of Naftali Bennett. So conflict dominates everything. I was struck even uh, by this woman, uh, Green, um, uh, a congresswoman who now in America, in the Post, compares the Democrats to Nazi Party. Um, even the Guardian, the London Guardian, the source perhaps not of conflict, but of charity and cooperation, had a piece a couple of weeks ago uh, by a very distinguished scientist, British scientist, Nicola Rehani, uh, about um, our lack of charitability, even when people are doing good, uh, good deeds. Uh, I'm not sure whether this is a uh, a piece supposed to cheer us up or make us even more pessimistic our, about our ability to cooperate. Anyway, uh, Nicola Rehani is one of the world's leading authorities on the idea of cooperation, particularly in the natural world. And she has a new book out. Uh, I think it's going to be one of the big books, actually, of 2021. It's called The Social Instinct, How Cooperation shaped the world. Uh, for those people watching as opposed to listening, we have the, uh, the, two, uh, the two screenshots are, uh, of different, uh, the different editions, the British and the American edition. Both have images of the natural world, one of bees, one of uh, birds and other flying objects. Uh, and I'm thrilled that um, Nicola Rehani is on the show. She is cooperating with me. Nicola, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on the show today, Andrew. So, Nicola, I, I, I'm afraid that was a rather long-winded introduction to this, uh, shall we say, this conflict between cooperation and conflict. When you look at the news over your uh, 
over your cereal in the morning. Do you sometimes get very depressed? After all, you are an expert on cooperation, and yet the newspapers always seem to report on conflict. Um, what do you feel in the morning when you look at all these stories of U.S., American, Chinese, Middle Eastern conflict? Does it confirm or undermine your theories in your book? Um, I think it can it can be quite depressing to read the news in the morning for sure and to see all the many ways in which we are sort of failing to achieve large-scale cooperation. But I think the perspective that I also have is that um, just when you just look out of the window in the morning, you see evidence of cooperation and of human cooperation in particular all around you. So, for example, um, the cars that might be parked on your drive or in your street or the train that you get on in the morning to go to work and the fact that you're able to, you know, board a crowded train, not so much nowadays, but board a crowded train and that everyone arrives at the destination in one piece. Like these are all examples of cooperation that we take completely for granted in some respects and so I think it is easy to see these examples of conflict in the world around us and to focus on those but I think if we take a slightly different perspective we can also appreciate that cooperation is really everywhere and is still very all pervasive in our lives as, as humans. Uh, Nicola, I've been browsing through the books. Really interesting. It's very well written. It's very accessible, even for a non-scientist like myself. Um, you seem to borrow from evolution, from science, in terms of your theories of our social, intact, uh, s social instincts. What can we humans learn from nature, from other species? What do you argue in the social instinct? I think one of the biggest takeaways is that we have an enormous amount in common with other species on this planet that live a social life. And what I mean by that is species that, like us, live in stable groups, sometimes stable family groups like we live in. Um, and we can learn a lot about ourselves by looking at, you know, how these other species live their lives and the kind of strategies, cooperative strategies, that they use to navigate the different challenges that they face in their environments. And so I like to think that humans are really just another animal on this great sprawling tree of life. And yes, there are some very, very obvious differences between us and other species, but we have a lot in common as well in terms of, and in particular in the way that we behave socially and in the way that we cooperate to um, to survive and to raise our offspring. Uh, Nicola, one of the, the stories that I, I really enjoyed in the book was the one about Argentinian ants. I didn't even know there was such a thing as an Argentinian ant. What, what do the Argentine ants teach us about cooperation and conflict? Well, these, these are a really interesting species. I'm glad you pulled these ones out as an example because in some respects, these these individuals are thought to be one of the largest, what we call superorganisms on the planet. Um, so there are two massive super colonies of Argentine ants that um, span across many different continents and many different countries um, in the world, and which are all thought to be descended from two distinct mother units or mother nests. 
And what that means for these ants is that in all these different nests in which they find themselves on the planet, in, in the ones that come from these two different lineages, um, when they meet another ant that's from the same lineage as themselves, they actually see one another as being a relative or as being a member of the same colony, even if they've never met that individual before. And even if that individual, say, comes from a nest in Italy and you're introducing them to another individual from a nest in New Zealand, for example, they will treat one another as relatives. Is that, um, is that biological? Is it cultural? Uh, it, it sounds to me like nationalism. So when Argentines travel around the world and they meet another Argentine in Japan or Africa or the United States, they are naturally friendly, whereas they bump into a Brazilian or a Chilean, they might be uh, less friendly. Is, is that the, the principle here? I think this is almost certainly mediated by physiological mechanisms like pheromones, which affect the way that the ants um, smell to one another and affects their, the way that they recognize either your, your friend, you're from the same colony as me, or you're my mortal enemy and actually I'm going to kill you if I see you. And that is how they treat the ants from the other lineage, the one that they're not from. And, and in fact, where these two super colonies meet um, in California is basically just a war zone between these two rival camps, just littered with the dead bodies of the soldiers from the two different colonies. So, so your um your observations about the argentine ants are are as much about conflict and war as they are about cooperation it's not as if the the argentine ants are uh, guardian readers and uh, very pleased with everyone and trying to help each other all the time yeah exactly so these you know this is not an unusually docile ant species that you know just is nice to every other ant that it meets i mean like i said when they meet ants that are not from their mother colony not from their lineage then all hell breaks loose essentially and it's really you know they will kill those other individuals if they can and I think it illustrates a more general point which I come back to again in the book quite often which is that cooperation and conflict are really just two sides of the same coin say more what do you mean what I mean is that at, at heart, cooperation is a means by which individuals more effectively compete. It's a means by which individuals um, enhance their own reproductive success and survival or the reproductive success and survival of their close relatives. And so inherently, although we tend to think of cooperation as being this lovely thing that we want to inculcate and that's, um, you know, we, we have a lot of positive associations with the word cooperation, in some sense, cooperation is also a means by which entities compete with one another. And sometimes cooperation at one scale will actually be manifest as competition at another. And so you could imagine those Argentine ants, for example, cooperating very effectively with one another to wage war on the rival colony. And so there's just this idea that cooperation is not necessarily always something which is producing only benefits to everybody. So you're, you're introducing or reintroducing Darwin or Adam Smith in the back door here. And, 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 and this was the, the point you were making in your Guardian piece about why we're so uncharitable to those doing good deeds. What you say, and you introduce this, this concept of the, uh, the word 
humble brag, which uh, you also introduce in the book, um, is that even when we're doing good deeds, we're competitive. And uh, your Guardian piece suggests that the best way to raise money is by um, encouraging donors to be competitive and feel as if they're on um, a winning team. Uh, Is that fair? I, I'm not necessarily sure that I would say it's the best way, but definitely well, the most effective way. Maybe not morally the best way, but it, it's, <laughs> one it's, way. It's, to, it's the best way yeah. to get people to give money to good causes. Well, one. So this is actually relating to a study that I did in 2015, which, in one review, I think they called it a brilliantly cynical study, which was. Um, Basically, we took pages from the online fundraising platform, um, a well-known online fundraising platform, and we took all the pages of people who had rate. Was that Palotta? Uh, no, it was actually um, Just Giving, which uh, is a platform. You, uh, you alerted me in your piece to Palotta, and uh, I was looking through uh, uh, this sort of feel-good giving, and it's really annoying. I think I think you're not the only person who has that sort of gut reaction to those kinds of uh, those kinds of organisations, and it's a big it's kind of an obstacle for them to overcome in a way because they're trying to do something they're trying to do something for good, but at the same time for the fact that there's a profit motive really really sort of sets off all our alarms about. Um, Nicola, you get into politics later in the book. It's always seemed to me as a as a, someone from London living in the United States, that Americans are particularly greedy for virtue. They always like to feel very good about themselves. Might one of the reasons for that be the relative weakness of the state and the fact that in the UK we rely on the state or we have historically relied on the state to do good, whereas in America people rely on individuals and individual acts of donation. So that sort of is, is the, the, the cultural difference in cooperation and sense of virtue which might come into your work i don't know actually i haven't thought about that before but it strikes me as um uh slightly implausible because it implies that people will um pay into a the provision of a public good without any um sort of without any downstream benefit in some respects and i think probably what's more um, plausible is that for some reason, and I admit here that I actually don't, I wouldn't be able to tell you what that reason would be, but for some reason it has become culturally more acceptable in the US to let people know about the good things that you're doing, to let people know about when you're giving to charity in a way that it's um, not really that acceptable in, say, the UK, and it's even less acceptable in some other countries, in particular, lots of societies that we might call collectivist societies, um, China, many, many countries in Southeast Asia, China, Japan, Korea, it's, it's even more frowned upon to sort of big yourself up, if you like. And, and you see it from a really early age that children, if you're running experiments with children where they can, for example, take the credit for a good deed that they've done, or they can say, oh no, that wasn't me, I didn't do that. The kids who, are, who, are, who you recruit from, say, China or Japan, are much more likely to eschew any credit for their good deeds and much more likely to endorse this norm, this cultural norm of modesty and of, of, of being humble, essentially. And I think those... And, but they're not bragging. We, Their humility is not a, a form of bragging, is it? 
in, in Asia no, as compared to the United States or other Western countries? I think it's really a culturally enforced, enforced norm that you don't take credit for the good things that you do. And the, the thing to do is to downplay, you know, any good things that, that you might have done. And I don't think we have a good sense of where those different norms, like why those different norms have have emerged and what their what their root cause is. But for sure, they exist across different countries and they affect people's behavior and how they advertise or not that behavior. Nicola, you're a behavioral biologist or psychologist or many, many other behavioral scientists of one kind or another, the, the, the beard hanging over your work and your book and this whole field is, of course, that of Charles Darwin, um, the father of, of all this stuff. Um, what are you saying that Darwin didn't see? I'm not just saying you, but but how has the science progressed since Darwin in terms of making sense of evolution? Because you are a, um, I, I mean, you're many things, but you, you seem to be above all else to be an, an evolutionary, what, biologist, uh, phys- physiologist, psychiatrist. You think in Darwinian language. So um, perhaps say something about that and explain what you and your colleagues have added since Darwin's great breakthroughs in the 19th century? Well, firstly, and most obviously, don't forget that at the time that Darwin wrote his book, we had no formal conception of a unit of inheritance. And by that, I mean, nobody knew what a gene was. Nobody knew how genes could act as packages of hereditary information. And so one major advance in social evolution theory has been to understand how the role of genes in um, understanding where traits come from and how they persist over populations. Um, I think what I think what we've done in really much more recent years in social evolution has been to focus much more on mechanisms that support cooperation. So I'm thinking of things like understanding the role of punishment or understanding the role of the the possibility for partner choice in the and, and how those things affect whether cooperation emerges in a particular society and what form it might take and how likely it is to be sustained. And those are very much the questions that you know that I'm interested in um, as well. So I think these this kind of mechanistic approach of like appreciating how cooperation evolves. Um, through this gene's eye view that so famously championed by Richard Dawkins, and then also understanding the mechanisms that support cooperation, I think are two massive advances that the whole field has made since um, Darwin wrote his book. Without wishing to, to sound rude, although I perhaps sometimes do, so what about all this social evolution? It doesn't change the situation in the Middle East. It doesn't change perhaps the coming US-China war or this endless war between the United States and Russia. Um, does it really teach us anything? The fact that Argentine ants might get on um, or that, you know, you, you, you write about the common warbler. Uh, uh, sorry, not common warbler, common babbler. You can always find examples in nature of cooperation, but it doesn't really change anything, does it, when it comes to the human condition? 
Um, I think that, so I think there's a value in doing blue skies research and I'm not going to, I don't really feel like I have to defend that in a way. I think loads of the biggest scientific advances we've had have come from people asking fairly blue skies questions and wanting to understand the way the world works. And so I think there's a value in doing that regardless of whether you see any immediate applied benefits. But in the case of understanding cooperation, I think it's kind of obvious that there are applied benefits to um to that can where we can you know apply what we know to the real world for example understanding how punishment works and whether punishment might promote cooperation can help us to feed into the design of of more effective penal systems for example taking a much broader cross-cultural anthropological perspective on how and why humans have cooperated over our you know, the entire period of our evolution can help us to understand like where the pitfalls might be for us nowadays and where we're going to find it more challenging and where we need more rigorous policy design and institutions to scaffold cooperation to the scale at which we really now urgently need it. And so I think there are actually you know, applied insights that can be drawn from this that that have never been more relevant in some respects. I mean, all of the global problems we face now will only be resolved through cooperation. And the big question, I think, is like, can we actually do that? Can we put these what we the insights we have from from science that have been generated by people like Eleanor Ostrom? The right. Late well, I, was, I wanted in... to get to Eleanor Ostrom, who um, a Nobel Prize winning economist. You bring her up in your book. And yesterday, um, I interviewed George Zakadakis, uh, who's the author of Cyber Republic, um, the Greek uh, thinker on digital democracy and, and digital openness. And he also falls back on uh, uh, Ostrom. So both days we have uh, Eleanor Ostrom coming up. I don't know what that means. What's the big deal about Ostrom? What should and does she teach us? So I think one of the most important lessons and one which I mentioned in the book concerns how we can effectively manage uh, global or, or large scale social dilemmas. And one of the key insights from Eleanor Ostrom's work, much of which was done in the field and has been tested in field settings, is that some of the most effective ways to solve these social dilemmas, which include things like how do you manage a shared resource like a fishery? How do you manage um, a forest commons? How do we manage a shared atmosphere and the climate and things like this? Can be not to impose top-down regulations on people and to have all the rules and institutions coming from the top down, but rather to design to local solutions to problems. So she calls this think global, act local. And basically the idea here is that often the solutions to these large scale problems can best be tackled at a local scale. And once you join up those local responses, you start to approximate something like a global solution. And I think in the UK at least, um, I don't know whether we've learned this lesson yet, but like one of the big lessons of the COVID pandemic has been that the kind of centralized top-down approach to managing things like test and trace has been an unmitigated disaster. And there's, I think, a pretty broad consensus among the public health community that if that had been devolved to local authorities, things would have gone much better. And so I think this idea of thinking local, 
acting global, which is Eleanor Ostrom's catchphrase, has enormous utility in helping us to solve some of these quite thorny challenges that we face. One of the thorniest challenges, Nicola, where I'm talking to you from, California, uh, is a water shortage. Uh, CNN uh, headline today, two million Northern Californians under an emergency. Um, and this is all um, both caused and creating water conflict. It's, of course, part of the, the, the broader struggle against global warming. What does your book, The Social Instinct, uh, tell us about perhaps the biggest threat we have collectively? Um, global warming, which crosses boundaries, which doesn't doesn't differentiate Russians and Chinese and Palestinians and Israelis. I think the key, I mean, like, I don't really, my book isn't a policy book and it's not, I'm not in the business of making policy recommendations, but I think the key insight that I would offer and that I do offer in, in the book at the end is that we shouldn't be complacent and that we've never before faced a challenge on the scale of the climate crisis. And when when we look at our ability to solve more immediate, more pressing, uh, arguably easier to solve challenges, like for example, the one presented by the current COVID pandemic, things don't look particularly rosy for us. I mean, we have really struggled to appreciate just how interdependent we are as a species on this planet within the COVID pandemic. And unless we can start to gain a better appreciation of the fact that we're all interdependent and that we need to um, devise cooperative solutions that can tackle these kind of global scale problems, I, I feel not very optimistic really for, for us, but I realize that's a kind of a bit depressing, but um, I think we can do it. And I think we've shown that we have enormous ingenuity in this realm in terms of devising institutions that can promote cooperation, that can scale cooperation up. But I don't think it's, I think we should also really not be complacent. I don't think it's a given that we're gonna do that and that there's no God-given uh, preordained outcome that our species will have a happy ending. You know, I really don't believe that. And I think we, we can look- I don't think anyone system. thinks that, do they? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. We had uh, Tim Jackson, um, I, I'm sure you know his work, another British academic uh, on the show recently. He has a new book out, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. Your sort of, your your, your understanding of conflict and cooperation is, sort of is interesting in the context of capitalism. Jackson doesn't believe that we have much of a future as a species, I think, uh, uh, with capitalism. We need to get beyond it. Do you have a a view on that? Does capitalism, can capitalism coexist with cooperation? You seem to suggest it can. These are big questions. I mean, I... You come on the show, Nicola, for the big questions. You, yeah, you teach I mean, the small questions in your classroom. I think, I think the idea of zero growth is really interesting. And I... I'm really sympathetic to people who have that kind of ideology of like, if we could only stop capitalism, then we then things would turn out better for us. But the problem I have with those worldviews is that I feel like they are divorced in some respects from reality, which is um, we are 
life is predicated on competition and and i think just wishing away something some structure like capitalism is not necessarily um realistic without without a really clear roadmap of how that happens and i mean i don't know a lot about this area but from the things where i have read into this zero growth kind of economy to me none of the solutions strike me as being that likely to be taken up or that realistic because in the end when you have if you have a nation that decides to go for zero growth and they are in a world where every other nation is on a growth economy it's competition that in it's a competitive scenario in which the zero growth nation will ultimately not do as well and i think i don't think these kinds of things are that trivial to just wish away and in a way Nicola, you were introduced to me uh, by your colleague at University College uh, in London, uh, Stephen Fleming, who uh, was on the show a couple of weeks ago, Know Thyself, The Science of Self-Awareness. I talked to Fleming, like you, a very distinguished and um, articulate scientist about the limits of science in terms of making sense of, of, of the human condition. Do you think there are limits? Are there things that science can't teach us um when you do your work do you say well over to you poets over to you filmmakers over to you novelists or do you think your science particularly uh, evolutionary science can make sense of, of practically everything i think i think in some respects everything is potentially knowable but i think that that's a massive step away from saying we can actually know everything and so I think in theory, science gives us the tools to understand the human condition, but I think we are a far cry away. I think in, in my field, and I think Steve would agree in his field as well, we're nowhere near being able to achieve that. And so, yeah, I guess my answer to that is kind of mixed. Like, I think it's a theoretical possibility, but I think it's one that hasn't been really realized. Well, Nicola, to conclude, bear with me here and tell me if this is an inappropriate question. I always look up people's, when I when I interview an author, I always look up their Wikipedia page. And you got one of the best Wikipedia pages I've ever read. Talks about your early life and education. And, it, and, and, and I'm not making this stuff up. It could have almost come out of an Auburn War novel. Uh, Rehani is the daughter of a Playboy bunny and an Iraqi chemical engineer. Uh, uh, she stayed in Cambridge for her graduate studies, where she studied cooperation in pied babblers in the Kahar, Kalahari Desert. Her doctoral research was supervised by Tim Clutton Brock. Um, do you think being the daughter of a Playboy bunny and an Iraqi chemical engineer, did that drive you into spending your life studying cooperation? Um probably not I, I i i don't know i i basically had i the person who did my wikipedia page for me asked me about my bio and i thought well people always say who their folks are and where they've come from and this is my really true story so i'll just say it and i think you know obviously that is a quite unusual pairing of meeting with the male or female and was the my, my mum oh so your my, mother was my a mum, money and yeah. your father was a, an iraqi uh, engineer he, yeah, so my mum worked the, the product of that. I am the product, and yeah, they had a 
short-lived but um, productive union resulting in two offspring, me and my brother. And um, yeah, they, I, I guess, yeah, it's just one of those strange stories that so you kind of don't believe it unless you kind of, well, I believe it because it's my life, but yeah. Well, the, the cooperative nature of the human condition, I think, lends itself to that. I mean, that's what you write about in The Social Instinct. There was clearly something instinctively social about their union, and it produced you and your brother and a, and a, and a new generation of scientists. So um, it certainly conforms to your work. The, your, your new book, The Social Instinct, How Our Cooperation Shaped the World, is uh, is really profound. It's 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 deeply erudite and very readable. It's a must read, I think, for anyone interested in this field. So congratulations on that, and Nicola. I know it's your first book, but I think it's gonna it's it's gonna be a bestseller. Um, you are in Hertfordshire at the moment, uh, no doubt stud- studying nature of some sort uh, in the post COVID or perhaps post COVID age. I heard in the UK they changed their minds again about whether you can go out. So in addition to your new book, what else should people be reading in these strange times where we're not sure whether or not we're allowed out? Well, uh, I am currently reading Steve's book, so I was going to show you that one, but you've said oh, that yeah. one already. Well, and now... about Steve's book because okay. uh, it definitely deserves another blurb. He uh, he was very kind about your work, and I think his book is really good too. It, they should actually be read together, but say something about Steve's book. I'm really enjoying it. I mean, it's a book about metacognition, essentially how you know, how can we know what we know? And Steve is a brilliant guide. I mean, he's a leader in the field and the book is so, so accessible and um, engaging and actually has quite a few, I think there are quite a few laugh out loud, funny anecdotes in there as well. So it's sort of entertaining on all fronts. And yeah, I really think this is a good one. I recommend and anything else? You said you had another one? I've got one more. Yeah, this is another former colleague of mine. This is by Lucy Fuchs. This came out this year as well. And it's called Losing Our Minds, What Mental Illness Really Is. And in the book, Lucy takes on this, um, the recent trend towards describing normal experiences or normal aspects of the human condition in terms of mental health disorders and where the problems in doing that can lie. And this is just a really, um, again, really accessible, really, really, I read this in like a day, it's very, very easy to read. And I think it's just a really balanced take on what is actually a pretty sort of controversial and loaded area at the moment. So I would recommend that to anyone who is interested in mental health and the creeping sort of medicalization of the normal human experience. Yeah, it sounds like a great book. I'd like to actually get her on the show. Yours is a great book. Um, and uh, that was a wonderful interview, uh, Nicola. Thank you so much. The Social in- uh, the social Instinct, How Corporations Shape the World. Uh, Nicola Rehani's new book, Must Read. Ha- lovely to have you on the show, Nicola. Keep Thanks. cooperating. Keep doing your great work. And we'll have you back on. Keep well, too. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.